0: Solomon. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and he will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you. As long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations, He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish, an abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him, and his enemies will lick the dust." The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries. The poor also in him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence. And precious shall be their blood in his sight. And he shall live and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth on the top of the mountains. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Today we are in Deuteronomy 25, 11 through 19. It's entitled, You Shall Not Forget. If two men fight together... And the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of the one attacking him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the genitals. Then you shall cut off her hand. Your eyes shall not pity her. You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a heavy and a light. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure, that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who behave unrighteously, are an abomination to the Lord your God. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks. All the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be, when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around, in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance— That you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. The passage today is actually divided into three separate sections of law and of what is expected of and from the people of Israel, but each deal in typology as well. The first section probably seems a bit bizarre and unrelated to anything else, but it is actually closely related to the verses from our sermon last week. The second section is a close repetition of earlier words given in Leviticus, and its principles will be cited several times later in Scripture. And the final section suddenly comes forth without any seeming connection at all to what comes before it. And yet, they all follow a logical and orderly path in how Israel is instructed, and thus how we are to be instructed. As I said, these are also given as typological hints of that which will come later in redemptive history. In them, there is the underlying truth that Christ is the fulfillment of the law, and that we are obligated to come to him in order to be right before God. Once we are right with him because of our relationship to him in Christ, we are then given the ability to conduct ourselves properly before him, advancing on and destroying the enemies of the Lord's people as we go. Our text verse comes from 2 Timothy 2, it is verses 1 through 4, You therefore, my son, Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Only the third passage in our verses today really anticipates warfare, but For the believer in Christ, all three are to be understood from the perspective that we are in a war, and that we must use the implements of our warfare properly in order to win the battles we are to face. In all, the verses and words before us are interesting, and they continue to confirm positive truths for Israel as well as us. Also, they are to be taken as warnings for Israel as well as admonitions for us. The Lord does not waste words, and when he can convey two or three or even more ideas in a single passage, he will do so. Thus, going through the law is to be an exciting adventure where we learn words of law, while at the same time we can learn about the grace of God in Christ in relation to that same law. It is a marvelous journey that we are on. On the day I typed this sermon, my friend Sergio emailed me that he had been to an excavation site to record something for one of his YouTube videos. I told him I had been excavating as well. With that, he sent back a question mark, asking what I meant. I told him I had been digging out treasures, excavating from the Word. That is what we are to do. Dig, search out, and bring forth treasure. And there is so very much treasure to be found in his superior Word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first of three thoughts today is your eye shall not pity, verses 11 and 12. The previous section, detailed last week, dealt with the issue of raising up a son for the name of a dead husband by a brother of the husband. In that, he did not want to fulfill the duty, and thus he denied her dead husband the right to have his name continue. In this, she was allowed to openly rebuke him and publicly disgrace him for his unwillingness to act as the law provided. The first verse of the passage today will now take that precept and move it from the man who is the wrongdoer to the woman. This is evidenced with the first words of the passage. Verse 11, If two men fight together, Ki yinatsu anashim yachta ish ve'achiv when fight men together, man and brother. This then could be referring to two Hebrew men, herein called brothers, and this is how most translations state it, one and another, or a man and his countrymen, or something like that. But if it meant any man, that could just as easily be said in the Hebrew. Both the Aramaic Bible and the Greek translation stick with the word Brother. Based on the fact that the previous section dealt with interactions with a brother, it seems that this is probably the intent of the Hebrew. Two men, brothers, are striving together. Verse 11 continues, And the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of the one attacking him. This would be a natural reaction for a wife. Her husband is getting pounded on, and she wants to protect him. But being the weaker sex and knowing that she has a limited ability to do so, she looks to gain an advantage in the matter. Verse 11 continues and puts out her hand and seizes him by the genitals. Nothing is said of the woman defending her husband in some other way. If she were to hit the man over the head with a broom, the law is silent on that. I know that's funny, but think it through. He only picks out this one thing, so he must be making a point. But in her actions, she reaches out and grabs what the Hebrew calls the mabush. It is a word coming from bush, meaning to be ashamed. Thus, it describes that which is hidden. The reason for highlighting this is twofold. First, this is where the life of man is transferred from. To act in such a manner then is to threaten life itself, even if not his personally. This is similar to the principle seen in Exodus 21, where it says, if men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life. In other words, the life in the womb is a human being, and if that baby dies, that person's life is forfeit. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. In such an instance life is threatened. What happens to the child is to also be the penalty imposed upon the man. Likewise, for simply attempting to subdue the man in such a way, it was a threat against the life that issues from him, and it was not to be tolerated. But secondly, the word itself provides another reason for the prohibition. It is the hidden or shameful part of the man. She has no right to pry into what is his in this way even in the protection of her husband. Therefore, if she presumes to act in such a manner, verse 12, then you shall cut off her hand. Ve kasuta et kapa, and you shall cut off her hand. Two words are used to describe a hand, yad and kaf. Yad indicates the arm hand from about here to here, while kaf refers to the palm of the hand or the sole of the foot it is thus the part of the arm reserved for describing that which has the fingers and the palm. The specificity is probably to ensure that only the hand is cut off, and no extra liberty, such as cutting off up to the elbow, is taken by the one detailed to carry out the punishment. But even chopping off a hand is a stiff penalty to inflict upon another. Thus Moses says, verse 12 continues, your eyes shall not pity her. To modern senses, This probably seems like an intolerant set of verses and an archaic and unacceptable way of handling the situation. However, if it is not taken as a standalone, but is taken in the context of the previous verses that spoke of the brother who would not fulfill his duty to raise up a son in the dead husband's name, it no longer seems that way. Such a man was publicly disgraced for his actions, and his house was to continue on in that disgrace. Hence, the woman has purpose to attack the very part of the brother that was to be used to raise up his children, or ostensibly her children, if such a need arose. It doesn't matter whether that right would ever be needed or not. In principle, because of the law of the Yavam, or husband's brother, seen in the previous verses, she was as much attacking the authority of her own husband as anything else. As far as what this is typifying, if the typology is to remain the same as the previous passage, as it certainly does, then you have the wife representing humanity, and the brother, her brother-in-law, represents life under the law. It is typologically representative of humanity reaching out to grasp life under the law at the point where life issues from. In other words, we are seeing a picture of humanity attempting to obtain life through the law. One could look to Leviticus 18 verse 5 to understand this. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. If you do the things of the law, then you will live. We've been shown time and again that that is impossible. But this is a picture of somebody trying to merit life apart from the work of Jesus Christ. However, though life issues through a man's private parts, so does sin. And Paul explains that in relation to the law. Romans 3.20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. That this is dealing with the law and the transfer of sin. The terminology of the passage makes it perfectly clear. The Hebrew word indicates that the man's private parts are being highlighted as the spot of shame. This is evidenced in Genesis 2, verse 25, where the word bosh is first used, saying, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. After the fall, the shame was introduced. In grabbing for the law, one grabs for shame. It is Christ alone who is sufficient to bring life without shame. Hence, Paul says in Romans 10, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. In reaching out for the law, one will only find shame and being cut off. But in reaching out to Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law, one finds righteousness and no shame. It is in him alone that this can come about. There is shame of face before the Lord in what we do, we who have turned and done wickedly in his sight. And yet, the Lord remains faithful and true, and he has promised that he will make all things right. Will we reach out and grab that which brings shame, or will we reach out for the offer he has made? Will we look to exalt our own name, or will we look to Christ and accept the offered trade? We must choose which way we will go what we reach for will reveal our heart the lord has made his offering and so let us choose the good path let us choose that better part our second thought today differing weights and differing measures its verses 13 through 16 verse 13 you shall not have in your bag differing weights lecha even va even no shall you have to you in your bag stone and stone the king james version translates this as diverse weights nowadays divers weights refer to the lead that divers use to keep them weighed down while underwater a newer translation is always a giant help in understanding meaning that was a joke in these words there is a new word kiss it is a bag or purse coming from kos, a cup Hence, it is a bag for money or measuring weights, or even a cup. In such a container, the measuring weights were not to be, verse 13 continues, a heavy and a light. Here it says a great and a small. The idea is that of a dealer who pulls one weight out of a bag to make something look lighter than it is, and then he pulls out another to make something look heavier than it is. He is a scam artist. As such, he would use the greater weight for purchases. See how small this is? I'll give you two shekels for it and I'm getting gypped on the deal for sure he would then use the small stone for sales look at how much you're getting and this at the low low cost of seven shekels such a bargain for you I'll go broke at these rates such is deceitful and it is to be rejected because it is contrary to what is just and right this is expressed in Proverbs 20 diverse weights are an abomination to the Lord and dishonest scales are not good Having a standard measurement has already been seen in Exodus, where the shekel of the sanctuary is mentioned in relation to silver, but merchant weights were often made of stone according to a set standard. Such a standard is noted in 2 Samuel 14 verse 26, and when he cut the hair off his head at the end of every year he cut it because it was very heavy on him. When he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels according to the king's standard. As there was a set standard, the weights of those who conducted business were to be compared to that standard. But anyone can make their own false stone that looks close enough to the standard to pass as genuine and yet be far enough off to enrich its owner. It is comparable to today's loading of the dice. Along with that, another closely related concept is next conveyed to Israel by Moses. Verse 14, you shall not have in your house differing measures. Lo be betecha efa ve efa. No shall you have to you in your house ephah and ephah. The idea is the same as before, but instead of weights, it is measures of volume and ephah. This is also mentioned along with weights in Proverbs 20, verse 10. There it says, diverse weights and diverse measures. They are both alike an abomination to the Lord. As the ephah is a set measurement, it was not to be falsified to cheat those who came to one's house to buy or sell grain. It was to be the standard size only and not, verse 14 continues, a large and a small. It is the same words as in the previous verse. Having a large AFA would benefit when buying. If a standard AFAW was worth 10 shekels but he used a larger AFAW then he could get 11 shekels worth for the set 10 shekels. Having a smaller AFA would benefit when selling. Using the smaller AFAW would mean the buyer would get 9 shekels worth for the 10 he paid. It is not a good thing that has taken place but Observant Orvi knew that crooked Craig uses a dishonest ephah, so he filed off the edges of his shekels enough to offset the loss. Such is life under the law. Neither should occur. Rather, verse 15, you shall have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure. In contrast to what has just been said, Moses commands what is full, perfect, friendly, and just The positive command is to counter the negatives. Here are the two negatives. You shall not have in your bag differing weights, and you shall not have in your house differing measures. To offset that, he says you shall have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure. And as always, there is a reason for Moses' words. It is the constantly repeated promise and warning. Verse 15 continues, that your days may be lengthened in the land ma'an ya'ariku al ha'adamah. To end purpose may be prolonged your days upon the ground. Moses ties in longevity upon the ground with doing what is right in this regard. The implication is that in not doing what is right, Israel's time there would not be prolonged. This is because it is the ground, verse 15 continues, which the Lord your God is giving you. It is the Lord who is giving the land to Israel. In giving it, there are conditions and responsibilities that must be met and maintained. If they do not uphold their part of the bargain, they can expect nothing less than exile from the land to which they have been brought. These commands are based on the same sentiment spoken directly by the Lord in Leviticus 19. There it says, "...you shall do no injustice in judgment, in measurement of length, weight, or volume." You shall have honest scales, honest weights, and honest ephah, and honest hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The Lord noted that it is he who brought Israel out of Egypt. As such, Israel was brought from bondage and was to be delivered to freedom, at least freedom from Egypt. In his justice and keeping his promises to the patriarchs, he expected the same justice of those who descended from them. They were to be a holy people to the Lord and to reflect his just, perfect, and truthful character. In not acting in accord with the law of weights, just weights, and just measures, they would prove they were not worthy of what he had bestowed upon them. In this, they would receive the same measure as they used against one another. And this is a precept that Jesus continued to relay to them when he came. While speaking to Israel under the law, he said just this, judge not That you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. The Lord, in his relationship with Israel under the law, dealt to them what they dealt toward others. Their punishment and exile resulted in a perfectly just sentence against their unrighteousness. This wasn't something hidden from them, rather, it is that which was spoken forth in advance as a warning by Moses. Verse 16. For all who do such things, all who behave unrighteously. The Hebrew is more precise, repeating the word do and using a noun rather than an adjective. kal ose ele ko avel All who do these, all who do unrighteousness. It is the works that define the person and it is the law that judges the works. Thus, it is the sentiment repeated several times by the Lord to Israel. Though speaking of false prophets, it is the idea of the fruits of one's deeds that Jesus speaks of in Matthew chapter 7. He says there, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. He then speaks in similar words to the leaders of Israel concerning the fruits of their doings. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. The issue is the heart. Whether the outward display is found in unjust weights and measures, or in what is spoken forth with the mouth, a measure is set forth which determines the fate of the one who acts in such a way, or the nation that acts in such a way. The unjust heart is revealed in the unrighteous doing. And all who act in such ways, verse 16 continues, are an abomination to the Lord your God. The words are actually the first clause of the verse— it says ki toavat Yehovah Elohecha for the abomination of Yehovah your God, are such people. In a literal fulfillment of these words from Moses, and in the same vein as those who Jesus referred to, whose words reflect the state of their hearts, Micah says this concerning Israel, are there yet treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? And the short measure that is an abomination. Shall I count pure those with the wicked scales and with the bag of deceitful weights? For her rich men are full of violence, her inhabitants have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Though these verses may hardly seem Christological to you, they bear the same stamp of Messiah as does all of the rest of the law. Here we have verses that speak of honest weights and honest measures. Jesus then noted, thus confirming Moses' words concerning their living in the land being dependent on their conduct, that the measure they used under the law, so it would be measured to them. However, there is another measure that is handed out for those who are no longer under the law. It is Christ who fulfilled the law and who not only fulfilled it, but who took the full measure of the penalty of the law upon himself. In this, a new measure is given to those who trust in him, and what he has done. Before I go on, does everybody understand what I just said? You can be judged by the law, or you can be judged by Christ. What did it say back here? For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Your words under the law will either justify you or condemn you, but your words for Christ will justify you. Does everybody see the difference? It's law or grace. I don't care what you're looking at in the Bible. It is law or it is grace. And there is no other option. It's not, I'm going to be in Jesus and observe the law because I've been getting emails like that continuously for the past couple of weeks. It has gone on and on and on. It's either Christ or it is the law. And you cannot mix the two and come out unscathed. We'll go on. Paul (laughs) explains it in Ephesians chapter 4. But to each one of us, grace is... I'll stop right there. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. Okay? You can't earn grace. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure. Weights and measures is what we're talking about right now, folks. The measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, here we go, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. What Christ offers is not a law of works in an attempt to be righteous, nor a law of works that says when you fail, you are unrighteous. In the law, there are set standards, weights, and measures that must be maintained. Rather than that, what Christ offers is a gift of righteousness, and that then provides what he measures forth in order to bring us to the measure of the stature of the fullness found in him. Everybody got that one? You're given something. You're giving something. You're given something. It's all grace. Whatever you get is the measure that you get, but it's all coming to the full measure of Of the grace of God in Christ, the ultimate standard, the ultimate measure. Does everybody see that? That's what's going on here. The contrast is complete. One approach says, Do this to be righteous, even though it is not possible to do it. We saw that in the last passage. Cut off her hand. She tried to do something that she is not to do. The other says, Because I have made you righteous, do this to demonstrate it. He made some for pastors and some for preachers and some for teachers and this and that. Do it. Do it to the glory of God who gave you that gift in the measure that he transmitted it to you. That's what's being said here. This is the marvel of what God has done for us in Christ. He has taken away the law that stood opposed to us and he has given us what the law could not bring to us. If you read the three synoptic gospels and you apply yourself in them in any way, shape or form, you are forming a problem in your theology because Jesus was never speaking to you when he said those things. He was speaking to Israel under the law. This is what you have to do if you want to be righteous and you can't do it. And therefore, someday I will do it all for you. And when I'm done with it, then you put your trust in me. You put your trust in me. You've got a choice. Take the synoptic Gospels and live them out and be condemned. Or take Jesus Christ, who has lived out what was mandated there, and he will give you life forevermore. Thank God for Jesus Christ, through whom God has done these things. A perfect and just weight, this is good in the Lord's sight. A perfect and just measure, this is good in his eyes. Let us strive to do that which is right, and let us fix our eyes upon the prize. Make our actions be open for all to see, and may we deal justly with others always. A perfect measure and a perfect weight shall be the standards by which we fill our days. To the glory of the Lord who watches over us, and to the glory of him who is pleased in what is right, may we always emulate the Lord Jesus. In this we will be pleasing in God's sight. Our third thought today, blot out the remembrance of Amalek, verses 17 through 19. From noting those who are an abomination before the Lord for their conduct towards others in the misuse of weights and measures, Moses next turns to those who acted unrighteously against Israel when they were in a weakened state. In both, there is the knowledge that the Lord is aware of the wrongdoings and that he will take corrective action. The transition between the two, then, is evident and made smooth because of this. Verse 17, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. Just as in Deuteronomy 24, verse 9, and using the same construction of the sentence, Moses jumps from the singular to the plural. Zakor et asher asa lecha amalek mimitzrayim. Remember what... Did to you, singular, amlek, in the way, in your plural, coming out from Egypt. Notice the two side by side. Remember what the Lord, your, singular, God did to Miriam, in the way, in your plural, coming out from Egypt. And then, remember what amlek did to you, singular, in the way, in your plural, coming out from Egypt. One can see that Moses is referring to Israel as the Lord's people here without saying it. The Lord, Israel's God, took action against Miriam as the people were coming out of Egypt. Likewise, Amalek came against Israel, the Lord's people, as they were coming out of Egypt. You see the parallel? Miriam offended the Lord and was punished. Amalek has harmed Israel, and they are to be punished. Both are being used as examples for Israel to see and to learn by. Thus, what will be stated about Amalek is as much of a warning to Israel as it is a command to act by Israel. Verse 18, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks. Using a new word, zinev, the Hebrew reads, how he met you in the way and tailed in you. The verb zinev means to extend or to tail out. Thus, the phrase means that Amlek attacked the tail of the people, cutting them off. The words are comparable to the English word that we use when we say skin and animal. The noun skin is made into a verb that describes the task of removing the skin. What Moses says here is not recorded elsewhere, but he states it as a fact that is to be remembered. While Israel was going forth, Amalek took advantage of the weakest of them, who were at the rear of the formation, which he notes were, verse 18 continues, all the stragglers at your rear. Kal ha-nechashalim acharecha, all the enfeebled behind you. Here is a new word used only this once in scripture, chashal. It refers to those who are weary or enfeebled. Thus, it speaks of those who just couldn't keep up. They languished behind, resting and trying to recover, and Amalek took advantage of them. This was verse 18 continues. When you were tired and weary, and there is an emphasis in the words ve'ata ayef ve'yageah, and you faint and weary. Another new word is given yageah. It signifies to be wearisome. The entire congregation was in need of water. That's found in Exodus 17, which the Lord did provide and they were worn out, and they were depleted. In this state, Amalek was able to take full advantage of those at the rear ranks. It would be probable that this occurred before the Lord provided Israel water. Not knowing that they had been given water and were refreshed, Amalek thought that they could come and defeat all of Israel. Instead, they were defeated in the battle at Rephidim. What was evident from their conduct is that, verse 18 continues, And he did not fear God. The general term for God, Elohim, is used here. It neither says the Lord, nor is there an article before God, as in the God. What this means is that Amalek had pushed away even the general understanding of God that is written upon the heart of man. They had suppressed the knowledge of him to the point that there was no fear of him in any respect at all. It sounds just like the people of America today. We have completely rejected any thought of the the God in ourselves, and even the general notion of God in ourselves. In such a state, there could be no remedy for them. As such, verse 19, therefore it shall be, when the Lord your God has given you rest, it reads, and it shall be in resting Yehovah your God to you. In other words, Israel was on a journey, and they were weak and weary. Their journey is not yet complete, nor will it be until the land before them is subdued. But there is a time coming when the Lord will have given them rest. Verse 19 continues, from your enemies all around. The word all is stated twice, from all your enemies all around. In other words, all of their enemies in every direction around them will have been pushed back or defeated enough to allow them rest. There will be nothing to distress them when they are called to the action at hand, which is, verse 19 continues, in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. The land is the promise. It is to be given to Israel by the Lord. It is to be their inheritance, and it will be possessed. These are all stated as axioms by Moses. These things will come to pass. When the state promised in that land, meaning being given rest is realized, it is then, verse 19 continues, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. This is Moses' reminder to Israel of what was stated in Exodus 17, verse 14, at the battle of Rephidim. There it said, then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. If you noticed, in Exodus 17, the Lord said that he would utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek. However, here, Moses tells them that they are to do so. They are to be the instrument of the Lord's judgment upon Amalek. It is the synergistic, meaning working together, relationship that is so often seen in Scripture be it in the conduct of warfare by Israel or in the process of salvation, where God does the work to procure salvation. The church does the work of carrying forth the message of salvation and the sinner accepts what God has done. Everybody see that? People tell you that Jesus Christ does all of the work and you don't have to do anything because he regenerates you in order to believe. That's not taught in the Bible. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ did everything necessary for you to be saved. Now the church is going to go forth and tell people this. We have our part in it. And then the person hears the message and he calls on Jesus or he rejects Jesus. We all have our part. The Lord uses his people to accomplish his purposes. As such, Israel has a responsibility to fulfill the Lord's will. Understanding this, Moses emphatically states the following. Verse 19 finishes with, you shall not forget. Lotish no shall you forget. Israel was to remember their responsibility and to perform it according to the Lord's will and his directive. This mandate was slowly and carefully carried out. Gideon faced Amalek along with the Midianites. Saul faced them, but disobeyed the Lord in his encounter, thus causing him to lose the kingship of Israel. David faced Amalek several times during his reign as well. And the book of Esther describes the destruction of Haman, who descended from Amalek also. But Amalek is used in scripture in typology as well. Their name is derived from the word Am, which means people, and from the word Malak, which gives a sense of ringing off the head. They are the people who ring off. In type, and as was seen back in Exodus 17, they are those who are disconnected from the body and strive to disconnect the body. Thus, they represent false teachers, heretics, and other unregenerate people who are constantly attacking the weakest of the flock. They are those Paul warns of in the book of Colossians. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. If you tear off that head, you're going to get no nourishment. You're going to get no training and you are going to be led astray. The Lord promised that he would destroy Amalek, but Moses then said that Israel would do so. In type, the Lord has given us his word to stand on and to use both offensively and defensively. He has commissioned his people to be the means of destroying the doctrine of those who attempt to wring off his people from the body. This is the reminder that Moses now emphatically gives to Israel, you shall not forget. And it is the admonition that we too are given. We are to remember proper doctrine and we are to continue to fight against those who come against the enfeebled of the body. But we cannot fulfill this calling if we do not know and rightly apply the word that has been given to us. The lesson of Amalek is brought forward by Moses to remind us again a simple truth. Doctrine matters. The word is about Christ and what he has done. If we keep that in its proper perspective, and if we trust in the grace of God without trying to add to it or lead people away from it, we will do well. This word is far too valuable of a gift to allow it to be twisted, manipulated, or distorted by others. And we should hold it in such high value that it is placed as our highest priority to search out each day. We cannot know God. It is impossible without knowing Jesus Christ. And we cannot know Jesus Christ without this precious gift that speaks of him. If you're not in this word, you could be taught anything anything at all. I say this every Thursday, Guyana, Guyana folks. A lot of people went down there because they thought that they were being told the truth and they all ended up drinking the Kool-Aid. Waco, Texas, Joseph Smith, Ellen G. White, Charles Taz Russell. I could go on all day with names telling you of people that have taken the people of God and twisted them so far away from the Lord that they could never be saved ever. this word it's of that importance and it is of the highest value as jim said today when he read the uh, thing from the preface to the gideon's bible it's our compass it's our guide it's our light if we don't know it we only have ourselves to blame when we stand before the lord it's going to be in one of two contexts at the rapture we're going to go up to the bema of seat of christ for judgment of rewards and losses if you're not a part of that event You're going to have to go to the great white throne judgment. There will be people that are saved at that time because that's after the rapture, but they will get their judgment and all the rest of them will be judged based on one thing and one thing only, Christ. That's it. If you accepted Christ, you're going to go to one place. And if you didn't accept Christ, you're going to go to another. How do I know? It's right there. And so let us be responsible stewards of the trust placed into our care. May it be so to the glory of God. Please, if you've never called on Jesus Christ, all I would ask you to do is that first. You can't, you can get all the knowledge in the world. I've seen professors in colleges that have a lot of Bible knowledge, and they have no heart for the Lord at all. Uh They're all over the place. Got to get to know Jesus personally first. He died for your sins. He was buried. He was raised. This is the gospel message, and you're not going to go anywhere near God without accepting that premise. After that, You come to the word and you start studying it. You start reading it. You start listening to people, reading commentaries. But if you get into the commentaries first, you've got a problem because you have no idea if that person is teaching you properly or not. You need to know this word and then say, you know, that doesn't sound right. I need to talk to somebody about this and then get a second and a third opinion. As I said, you want to stick with the gospels? Sure, that's Jesus. The gospels are Jesus. That must be what we're supposed to listen to. Those three synoptic Gospels are written to Israel under the law, looking forward to Christ's fulfillment of the law. That's what they're there for. They're not instruction for us. Pray that you stand and are counted worthy when you stand before the Son of Man. That's what he says. Pray that you are counted worthy before you stand before the Son of Man. Is he talking to us? No, because Paul says that we are saved. We don't have to pray to be counted worthy. We are counted worthy because of Christ's righteousness, dispensations You have to know what dispensation, what is being said and why, what is God doing? How is he revealing these things to us? If you don't know that, it's all just whatever man says, whatever man says. Our closing verse comes from 1 Corinthians 2. These things we also speak, not in words, which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Here it is. This is what the Holy Spirit taught us right here. Up until the time this said, amen at the very last page. They relied on the Holy Spirit in one way. Now we have everything he's ever going to give us right here. We have to study what the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. You can't know these things. You can't know what a rapture is unless you get it out of the Bible. It's not going to happen. You can't know any of the doctrines of Christ unless you get them out of here. You can't just discern them, and that's what Paul calls a mystery. A mystery is something that it is impossible for man to know until God reveals it. And once you have the mystery, the Holy Spirit's given it. Now we know there's this, and there's this, and there's this. Thank God that we have that. The tough part for us now is to learn those things. Please read your Bible. Get up in the morning and read your Bible. Throughout the day, think on what you read. At the end of the day, read your Bible. So easy. Next week is Deuteronomy 26, 1 through 11. It's more important than showing up in a three-piece suit. It's entitled The First of the Fruit. That'll be our 73rd Deuteronomy sermon. The Lord has you exactly where He wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But He also has expectations of you as He prepares you for entrance into His land of promise. And so follow Him and trust Him and He will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Now, I got a question for you. I made this as easy as possible today. Really, I know. I, I really did because I want somebody to get this. My friend Chuck, you're gonna. He's been here many times. There, he and Bill uh, Bonham and his wife Sess and uh, Karen is Chuck's wife. You got Chuck and Karen and Bill and Sess. Kind of threw two of them in the middle because they come down together. Anyway, they come down each year, and some of you have been here will recognize them. Anyway, Chuck sent us something called. Huh, I don't want to give it away. Actually, he sent a whole boxful, so I can give this away. Apple butter. Has anybody here ever had apple butter? Oh, unbelievable. Okay. Uh, he had some last weekend. I'd never had it until I was up visiting them. I went up to Ohio last year. And, yeah, no, I'd never, never even heard of it. And we went to a restaurant, and I had that stuff, and I was like, ooh, ah. And they sold it in the restaurant. I carried some home, and they gave me some more. Here we go. This is Lind Fruit Farm homemade apple butter, no granulated sugar added. Okay, so here we go. What book, and this fits right in with what we've been talking about, proper doctrine, what book implores the reader? And if you know it before I finish, because I got a long sentence here, just shout it out. What book implores the reader to not receive into your house or even greet a person who comes to you But it is not with the doctrine that says Christ is God, meaning Christ come in the flesh. What book tells us that? No, no. No, no. John, there's three, four John books. Wrong. She already said that. Somebody. Oh, two John. What a smart person. You get a a, a thing of apple butter. All you had to do is just keep yelling books because that's going out today. I, I refuse to not have that go out today. Did anybody else say to John? That I didn't hear. No. Okay. Then Linda, you got it. Look at Linda, you are the winner of this apple butter. Have you taken one for yourself? I, he sent a box. He sent a box. So in other words, he's got 15 and you've got one. I think there's 18 in there. Okay. I got a poem for you, and then we're gonna have communion. No apple butter on your communion, okay? This is entitled, You Shall Not Forget. If two men fight together and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of the one attacking him, if this does occur, and puts out her hand and seizes him by the genitals, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eye shall not pity her. You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a heavy and a light. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small, This wouldn't be right. You shall have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure too, that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who behave unrighteously, are an abomination to the Lord your God. Such things as this shall not be. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your ranks and all the stragglers at your rear, the ranks he stripped. When you were tired and weary on the path you trod, and he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around, in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess, as an inheritance, that wonderful bit of ground, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek. From under heaven you shall not forget, you shall give him heck. Lord God, Turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the lesson of the law It's a wonderful lesson, even though it's so burdensome upon Israel and we see the tragedy that has come upon them for literally thousands of years because of the law, the greater world has found out that that lesson is one of love and peace and reconciliation because of Christ who came and fulfilled it. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he has done that no other human could ever do because the sin is already in us. We're already infected and you've given us these examples to teach us this lesson to appeal to us and to our hearts that we would simply come to Christ who embodies it and has fulfilled it for us. Thank you for Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, and it's in his name that we give you thanks and praise forever. Amen. Has anyone thought of durian butter? Durian butter. I like that idea. I like that idea. Durian butter. That would be like heavenly overdose. I don't know if that should be a lab. No, definitely not. (laughs)